The way we search for a property and gather information before making purchasing and selling decisions has changed profoundly over the past couple of decades. But the way in which we buy property hasn't really changed that much at all. I mean, we might be able to finally ditch the checkbook, transfer large sums of money electronically, sign a contract digitally, and then proceed to settlement entirely online. But real estate agents remain the gatekeepers to our property dreams. And yet, as real estate portals and digital platforms become more sophisticated as we trade more and more information online, the relationship between the seller, the agent and the buyer has been changing even if we haven't really noticed it. So what is happening in this space? What does the future look like? Is the real estate industry ripe for disruption? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready, and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Awards. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. We have a bit of a double-pronged episode for you today. We want to learn about what property data reveals about buyer preferences and whether or not they've been changing over the past few years. But we also want to find out whether AI and other new technologies could create an upset in the real estate space. And today we're joined by John Fung, who is the Chief Revenue Officer, very important title there, of Domain Group. John has access to a huge amount of property search data as well as a background working in the US, Europe, Australia and Africa for the likes of Google and Uber. And so we are excited to hear John's unique insights about changing buyer search behaviour and how he sees the future for the industry as a whole. Nothing like a big chunky topic to discuss. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. Thank you, Veronica. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be on. John, thanks for coming on, mate. I guess um, you've come from the, the Silicon Valley world into uh, residential real estate. What made you sort of make that shift? I mean, I guess it, it domains a real technology play, I guess. But, you know, what's the sort of, where does it sort of, the line between residential property and sort of technology really sort of interlink? You know, the cool thing about Silicon Valley is I think that the fundamental belief is that anything can be technologized. I'm not quite sure what the right verb is, uh, you know. Who would have thought taxis, huh? And now we have Uber. Uh, who would have thought go to the library? And that's what Google is. So for me, real estate, I mean, both in America and particularly Australia, it's its a place where everyone's trying to use technology to make it faster and simpler. So for me, it was a very, very natural fit. And I guess going into sort of domain, what made you sort of, out of all the companies you could have gone work for, right, in Australia, what sort of, what excites you about the real estate industry and, I guess, digitalizing it, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I love real estate. Even though I've never formally worked in real estate, uh, except for the last two years. Uh, I've bought and sold out 20 or 30 properties uh, in most of the states and territories of Australia. Do a lot of investing in the, in the states now. My dad was a real estate agent. Uh, ever since my first paycheck was like, we're going to buy an investment property. That's what we do. We're, we're in the market. We stay in the market. Uh, and so it's really been my, I guess, my family's business to say with my wife. And so even though I, I never thought I'd actually work in the industry, when this came up, it was like, oh my goodness, this is the dream job for me. It's funny though, because the real estate industry in Australia, it's so dominant. I mean, in terms of the asset value, it, it eclipses everything else. Um, and obviously our big four banks dominate the the share market and their big business is the mortgage. You know, this, it's just everywhere, right? But fundamentally, real estate agencies is really a cottage industry. And 
you know, in many ways. And so I, I wonder if that has been frustrating for you <laughs> or do you see it as just pure Greenfields opportunity? You know, I'll make a generalization about Australia versus America. In America, particularly in Silicon Valley, as you'll the intro, I spent 15 years working for Google and Uber, most of that time in Silicon Valley. Paranoia runs deep. Everybody is trying to one-up themselves before they get one-upped by some guy or girl in a garage doing it better, right? That's how Google and Facebook started, things like that. And I think there is a, there's something very exciting about that. A lot of innovation comes from there, but there's something that's a bit, a bit exhausting about that. I think one of the cool things about Australia is there's a lot of, I guess, time for the American way about trying to do things better, but it's a little more balanced, a little more sustainable. I think it's probably the right mix for me. That's an interesting insight, that one even in itself. All right. So you come from outside the industry technically. I mean, technically you're not outside a technical industry, but you're, you've come outside the real estate industry, but I guess you've got sort of uh, familiarity with it because you've grown up with it. Can you give us an idea of how the user experience, as you see it, is evolving for property buyers on platforms like Domain? You know, Domain and, and its competitors, the big shift was about 20 years ago, went from a fundamentally a, a newspaper classified-esque environment, you know, to an online. And then, I guess over the last 10 years, particularly as apps have become more intelligent, they've gone from, you know, static online, it was a print listing and now it's online, to some of more app-like experience with search parameters, with movable maps and things like that. I think you're going to see two shifts, uh, and this is certainly true of Domain. It will be true of many of our, uh, of other, com- not, not even competitors, but other other technologies, other apps in the space. You will see a lot more from the reactive to the proactive. So what the app will try and do is instead of saying, okay, tell me what you want. Okay, here's some results. We'll go from based on your search history and what we know about you, here's what we think will be a good fit. Is that good or bad? And then based on your actions to that, uh, that may change how it suggests Right, so I think that's one shift you'll see. The other thing is is obviously around AI and machine learning. Uh, some of that will be in the suggestion, but some of the experience altogether. You know, what can we do to create content, uh, maybe not even by a human, that would help make your experience quicker? Can videos be quickly automated? Can certain kind of maps, which bring out statistics that you like specifically, be made? Which would make sense if a human had to do it and make it just for you. But with AI, those things can be done. So. I think we're meeting a pretty exciting new world uh, for not just you know uh, businesses like real estate that's part of jobs and car sales and things like that, but there's some of the trends that you should expect to see. Do you, when you say that, John, do you mean that? Um, I mean, I guess the looking at people's search data, you can see they're all, they're very keen on houses in Newtown, and they want um, they just they they spend lots of times on those listings, and whenever someone comes up, they always go on it. So you can see that someone's an active buyer, etc. And then you could say, look, we've got a new listing in Newtown. It's very similar to what you've been looking at, and Maybe there's some type of push notification, et cetera. Almost like what, I guess, the notifications you can get now, but much more targeted um, to them. But the search sort of, you know, the buyer sort of who's in the market looking about what to buy, do you see yourself becoming a little bit more like a, a core logic or, you know, a land checker or, you know, overlaying things like flood maps or getting the data from the state revenue, the, you know, land registry of all past sales, not just ones on the platform and getting all their numbers on it. Do you see yourself almost becoming the tool that people use to help them buy rather than just a, I guess, a platform that shows what's on the market? Uh, I mean, that's exactly right, Chris. Uh, we have a new chief product officer, a guy called Nathan Rubbery, similar to myself, an Aussie who spent the last 20 years in the States. That's exactly his vision. You know, if you imagine what Google Maps has done, it went from being like, it's a map. It tells you where to go. That's cool. To now, it is suggesting layers at advertising to anticipate what you might be, what is your intent in coming to this map? That's exactly what what we aspire to do. 
You know, so that layers whether it's stuff that we know. We own a company, uh, we own a, a product called Price Finder, which has data on you know ninety percent of, of the Australian properties. You know, we want to overlay that data, and then we will try to make it in ways. And like I referred to graphs earlier, where I think if we do it well, everyone who's using the app becomes a local market expert. You know, they're going in, and you're giving them the right insights at the right time. Maybe even snippets from podcasts or press or things like that. That's going to be interesting to them. How do you compress that in like experience they can have while waiting at the bus stop? That's our challenge. Yeah, <laughs> it's such a, it's huge. And so, but effectively, you know, like it's like if you know you're on Facebook and and you get your feed. So basically, you know, we don't need to then be asking for. Or, or trying to dive in and looking for particular things, you're suggesting that it should all just get pushed to us based on what we've responded to um, in a way. So that's a total t- turnaround from search because that's going to be receive rather than search, isn't it? So how then does that change the measurement of what people are doing? Because then you're in an echo chamber, you're only going to be responding to what sort of comes under your nose as opposed to you actively going out. I mean, it's, I mean, I just look at this because I think about back in the olden days where we used to look through a realist, you know, through a, a newspaper at listings and you knew you'd seen everything because literally you could just run your finger down the columns and, and you've seen every single property that's on the market there. Whereas, and we've all got used to the idea of not necessarily seeing everything. We're seeing a filter of it and, and based on whatever parameters we put in, but also at the back end, what the agents put in. Um, and now we're actually moving to the next phase, which is like, we're not worried about seeing everything anymore. We're literally just wanting our curated um, version of events which is sort of interesting because I think to myself, I know when there's not much stock on the market, I, I I would go back and look again and again and again to think, did I miss something? Did I miss something? So, yeah. Oh, man, I've like so many comments. There's like so many jaws in there. Yeah. Uh, the, fir- the first comment I'd make is actually a question. How do you think TikTok measures success? <laughs> Engagement. Exactly, right? And how do you search on TikTok? We like- don't. Good, right? But it's an annoying platform. I mean, for someone like me who actually wants to have a bit more discernment over what I see, it's not the platform for me. So, you know, it's, are you suggesting that everybody's going to end up being the, the TikTok generation and we're going to buy a property like that or we're all going to be converted? I, I hope not because I think there is a world. I'm like you, right? If I'm looking at the area once I wear parameters, I just want to know everything. I want to know every single one of that population. In fact, I want to know the things that aren't popular because I might have a better deal there, right, as an investor. So I, I'm with you, Veronica. I, I think I don't think that's going to go away. And I actually think from an architectural engineering point of view, that's actually a bit easier because that's just the database. It's just the phone book of everything there. I think what TikTok has done, obviously a different analogy, is by using behaviors and what you've engaged with, to use Chris's term, like what you spent more on, what you flicked over, it actually has allowed two things. It's maybe increased the overall experience of video watching. People spend much longer in video than they did before. But secondly, just to challenge your notion, and, and people like myself, we have our search parameters, but actually our search parameters are the mechanical interpretation of what is our desire. But what if there are other things outside of those parameters that we haven't thought of that actually better our needs? And that's the genius of TikTok, you know, things like that. And I think a great app could possibly do that. Hey, you weren't looking here, but maybe you should. I wasn't looking for cat videos, but now I am. I'm an avid fan. Um, it is interesting, though, but the, the thing is, and that's something that we like to do in our business, you know, on a very, very manual, granular, analog sense, you know, we're literally consulting with people. And so obviously, but also the very nature of our business as a buyer's agency is that 
you can only deal with a handful of people at any one time. We've got a capacity constraint. So you're suggesting that obviously technology can expand that and, and the ability for people to have exposure to other options that they may not have otherwise looked at. The thing is, I also know human behavior and, and I know human behavior in Sydney, right, in terms of buyer behavior. And we're so parochial. You know, we, we are bordered by bridges and then within those bridges, we're bordered by main roads. We will not buy on the other side of that road. We will not buy on the other side of that bridge, right? So it's sort of interesting because, in, and I have no doubts that AI can deal with all this stuff, right? But it's like people aren't that open to other suggestions when it comes to property location, I can tell you that. <laughs> you know, and I think that's the, the genius of technology is not what it can do. It's discerning what should be sold by technology and what shouldn't. And for me, I mean, I... I, I I love buyer's agents. I wish that there were more buyer's agencies here. We used one to, to purchase the home we purchased recently. And in America, it's a standard. You know, there's always a seller's agent and a buyer's agent. And it's interesting when I look at some of the data from America, because you might expect America to digitize agents, right? That agents actually go away. Like travel agents, you know, have, have, have gone down over time. But actually, use of agents in America is at an all-time high. Like it's over 90%. It was always in the 80s and now it's up to 90%. And that's on both the selling and the buyer's side. Like it's crazy. People don't have to use it. Well, hang on, but there is a, there is a key difference over there, and and in terms of the buyer would use an agent over there because they're not paying for the agent, um, where and so the vendor pays a higher uh, higher amount of uh, commission, and that is split between the vendor's agent and the buyer's agent. Whereas over here, buyer's agency is very much user pays, and and so therefore there's only a small proportion of people that are going to engage one. Um, but when you say 80 or 90% of people in, use an agent in the US, are you saying as an alternative to selling their own property? Exactly. That's right. Or private, yeah, private treaty, effectively. That's that's so much higher than I would have expected. I would have, I would have expected the, the percentage of people trying to sell their own property being less than 10% or less than five even. I yeah, would have yeah. thought that was tiny. That's the crazy thing. Like yeah, you'd expect it to look like travel agents over time, but that's, that's the, the point I, I was trying to make it is very much that there is a human element to buying or selling one of the most important purchases in your whole life that I don't think will ever go. Right? You can't automate that. You can't TikTok that. Now, you can automate the stuff that maybe leads up to it, how people get educated, excited, discovery. And that's why I think agents will always be here and I think will only grow in value. But the way they add value will change as things such as discovery get commoditized. John, I think there's a lot of plays in the prop tech space that help agents better communicate with their customers, right? Like it's a do you see yourself as domain playing that role where they're almost the tool that agents are negotiating on the bids? You know, people are making offers on like a domain real estate portal, I guess, that you get access to once you've got your contract check. Do you see yourself becoming part of the, the overall transaction from, you know, once they display some interest in the property to actually almost being the platform that they use to, or do you want to leave that to other tools and you really focus on the, the sort of the, the search and the listing part of the, the portal? So we actually have some technology that does that. So domains, I guess where domain is at is we started off as a newspaper and now we're a portal. That is the majority of our business. And we have a bunch of products that help uh, properties get discovered. So, you know, you might advertise a domain and then buy like a social boost package, you know, which then gets your ads in one more place. So those marketing tools, that's the mainstay of domain. But we've got a lot of other, I guess, uh, software as a service. So I referred to Price Finder before, which is, or that agents use to, to, to do research, similar to, to CoreLogic RP data. Uh, but we have something called, for example, Real-Time Agent, which is like a DocuSign 
uh, that takes the process and digitizes it. And we have something called Bid Tracker, uh, which you know is similar to what you're discussing. Uh, it allows us to capture auction bids live and report instantly if people want to do particular remote you know auctions that are live. Uh, and so, what where we see ourselves adding value is we want to be a great portal, we want to be a great website where people come to. But for the agents, we want to offer them tools that make their life easier and give them more time to do stuff. Uh, so I think we are in a lot of those markets, and we'll probably try and add more over time. So, John, I guess it's this information that agents may not want to put on there, but is, is Domain's attitude, though, is that if we make it an amazing consumer experience, then that'll get more engagement. So, ultimately, the agents win anyway because we get more people on the platform, more people using it. But, yeah, some agents might not be happy. Some listings might be showing data that's not positive. But if we don't do it, maybe REA will do it or maybe some other platform, and then all the, the buyers would go there, which um, is ultimately the, the, the key thing that you need is buyers, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I think you phrased it very well, Chris, that trade-off. Uh, I don't know if many of you have read like the Amazon story, but uh, you know, we all use Amazon. Uh, there's a very famous episode where uh, Jeff Bezos says, we want there to be ratings for every every product. And one of the board members says, hey, Jeff, you know we only make money when people buy the product. So if you have a bad rated product, you know people aren't going to buy it. It just says, no, you think about it all wrong. Transparency builds trust and transparency builds speed. Right? And in the end, I think that's our, our core belief is ultimately a best customer engagement is to get them as much relevant information possible make a decision. And in the end, that is the best thing for ever in the ecosystem, including the agents. However, it doesn't mean in the short term there's friction. There, there may be friction from that. And so what we believe is that agents are central to the transaction. We need to consult them as we start to deal with some of these changes and manage it in a way that protects their business, but is the right thing for the consumer. So it's getting that trade-off right, and that's a lot of my job. This is actually really interesting because if, you know, this conversation progresses in the way that I would love it to progress, i.e. that you guys are doing what I think will be amazing, providing information that is over and above what is um, legislated, right? So this is something that I talk about in my business all the time and also with the Buyer's Agent Mentoring Program that I've created is that um, in every state and territory in this country, there's a different type of vendor disclosure that's been legislated. So some areas such as New South Wales and Victoria, it's relatively high. When I say relatively high, it's no by no means exhaustive. You do not the vendor does not have to disclose enough for you to make decisions on, but most people don't realise that. In Queensland is the worst. The vendor discloses the least amount of information and and ergo the agent. And so if domain as a national platform started you know, providing this sort of information for for argument's sake that I believe is realistically um, or reasonably um, the buyers really need, I guess, to make good decisions. And and then who who determines that? I mean, in a, in an ideal world, you go over and above legislated, like you get over and above, and you actually provide information that really does help people make good decisions. You you do a lot of shit buyers agents out of out of a job, which would be great because there's people out there buying property for clients, charging them and not even knowing what they don't know, you know. So it'd be amazing to have one source of truth or if two or a number of them, depending on how many portals decide to do this. Um, is that what you're talking about? Is that you're sort of talking about potentially providing more than is is even legislated, more than is is the bare minimum? Because then I can understand why agents are digging their heels in or might dig their heels in. I don't know if they are because they're not used to having to provide more than is absolutely necessary. I, I've been present when I've heard debates over what constitutes material fact, for example, you know, that they're scared in many cases. But having said that, though, um, 
you know, I've seen situations where, you know, people have sold a house that has had triple murder in it or double murder in it and they've had to disclose that in New South Wales anyway because of material fact legislation and it's actually buyers didn't give a shit. So it's it's like the agents were always fearful of transparency but transparency actually helped. You know, people do respond uh, to, as you say, it does build trust. So anyway, long-winded sort of diatribe on my end. But is that potentially what you're talking about here? Yeah, let me talk about what we're actually doing and let me talk about the realm of uncommitted possibility, but uh, I'll point you in that. You know, so I think we generally that more, better data and more transparency is a good thing. So recently, you know, now we it, it, it's a bit of a trivial example, but it makes a lot of difference to people. We now report on NBN availability, right? Which actually makes, it's, it's, it's meaningful. Right. And we're trying to do you know, like sustainability scores and things like that, which again, like the absence or the presence of that might be a factor for people. So we would love to bring more information there. We see that as something that's a differentiator for us, you know, where we're really going to educate folks. I, I think portals have a big responsibility in terms of what they can do above and beyond legislation. I'll give you a comparison. I spent about 13 years at Google beforehand. I worked on the search engine and in Google Cloud. And there came a point in time in the kind of the earliest, you know, 2002, that's 2010, when mobile was happening. And we came to a conclusion that actually in the future, more people be searching on mobile rather than web pages, uh, than on the laptop. But the problem is the way you architect a page for mobile it doesn't have my default. It does now, but it did it then. You had to make it smart mobile, you know, bigger text, smaller, you know, icons, all that kind of stuff. And what Google is asking itself is, okay, what can we do to encourage this? There's no legislation for this, right? But what can we do? Because fundamentally, it's the catch-22. If we keep making that websites, the best websites only really just work on the laptop, then you're not going to get people investing in mobile. But if you encourage people to work for mobile, then you'll get that market going. And in the future, we'll have mobile apps and move much faster. And what we basically decided and disclosed to the webmaster community is we are going to penalize your web page if it's somewhere more friendly. And we're also going to penalize your web page if it's got too much data and takes too long to load. That'll actually cost you making I'm quite transparent about that stuff. And so we we saw it as our way to kind of shape the market, right? In terms of that. And again, it's not just Google who made the difference there. It may have happened eventually, but we saw ourselves pretty crucial as hasting that. But Google is a dominant player like you know what i mean you can, if you own that degree of market share you can you can do that stuff right <laughs> you can now debate you know and and it's other large you know very very impressive competitors marine what you know again amazing company they're doing great things there's a lot of value that those two companies create if either one of us were to say hey like here are things that we care about we want this to be disclosed we want there to be like an inspection report that's downloadable uh if we want there to be a video if you do that we're going to give you ranking points. I mean, that ranking, particularly as we move to a more suggestion proactive versus a, a pure classified to reactive, that's very powerful. They might just look at the first three results. Once people know that, then you've got agents who are then going, well, if you want to be at the top of the rankings, you need to have this. And then it's going to force sellers to get their act together. Like, oh, I better make sure this house is in good condition. Because if I can't get it to rank, I can't get to sell. So that's how you create the market over time. Can I come on as a consultant? Because I think you need you need access to what we need. <laughs> I'll walk in any time as a consultant, uh, Veronica. I'd love, I'd love to say more about uh, you all. Of all people, know what buys buys what. Uh, you know, so and I'd love need to, and need. <laughs> it's a big topic within us eternally. I'd I'd love to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, because there's so many other things, right? It could be you know the DAs in the area, um, you know, all the sales from you know the land registry that are you know that haven't been sold on domain, like. Domain should really just be reporting on that. That didn't sell on any on our platform. Why isn't that, you know, listing just showing, you know? I think there's there's so many things. 
um, even just checking the strata report or checking the the building report, like you know, the, I guess is is there, is there plans to almost becoming like you know AI could be checking those to a certain extent and saying actually it's a really good strata report, you know, or there's not it's this one's issues. Like you got to step into the legal space at all, or is it really just going to be search overlays on you know things that are easy to get access to? I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. I can't comment specifically the legal thing. Uh, I don't think we're, we haven't got up to that part of the conversation yet. I think the one you've talked about it is, yeah, I guess overlays might be the right way to think about it. Probably what I see the teams trying to do is how do we create an app where it's possible to 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 map any kind of geospecific information into that app, right? Just like what Google Maps has done. How do you do it so that we can both have our own feeds from things like Price Finder, from government feeds, just the value in general, and, 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 and from third-party feeds like Google Maps, like whoever, right? How do we get that fed in? And then how do you create a system where over time we can experiment with the right level of exposure and correlate what are the factors that most heavily correlate with engagement? You know, hey, when a customer saw that, they spent more time on the page. Or actually, it got confusing. They just they just kind of bounced. You know, what will that system over time? And that's what the team, uh, we have a very talented uh, product leader called Thomas, uh, Thomas Young. He's the guy who's basically basically building this next generation of the app to do the kind of things you're talking about. I mean, Google Maps is a prime one, right? Because you could be putting on this road is, you know, running this many cars per hour um, in this section. And it's really busy between these hours. Um, this road's actually like a rat run when, you know, when this road's busy, this road gets busy. Um, you know, that type of Google Map data is like really interesting for people because it's really hard to know, especially if you're searching out an area. You know, yes, you can read a map and that's the main road, but you don't know about that rat run. You actually don't even know how busy it is, you know, and, you know, going on street view doesn't show you traffic, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, that would be a really interesting overlay, um, together with like the turnover rate, how many times do people sell in certain streets, right? Like you could be, and you'll very, you'll see alignment. It's good for buyers to say, well, actually only 1% of these properties turn over per year. This is a very scarce property, right? Um, and you know, that, that sort of information could you know, really help buyers really understand, you know, the complexity of the market's much faster, right? Um, whereas this street turns over at 7%, you know, a year, whatever it is. So, um, yeah. The tightly held index. No, I, I think I would love to make it transparent. You know, we talk about walkability scores and things like that or safety and things. Like, I think the challenge that, again, generalizing beyond real estate, the challenge that you have in a API environment like ours where, in theory, if you build the app the right way, you can plug anything in. And you have like a thousand data points you could use, and the customer probably only absorbed three or four. How do you prioritize that so it doesn't overwhelm, but it creates speed? Uh, and so that's why you have things such as you know heat maps or things like that. And I think that will be our challenge. First, can we architecture and bring in the right feeds? Now that we have them, how do we create it so it's easy for the customer and not overwhelming? I think that's the challenge. Because you've got sort of two aspects here. You've got what the customer wants 
and then what they need. And often what they need is very unsexy. That's the boring stuff that's likely going to overwhelm them. Um, what they want and um, is stuff like, oh, I want their off-market. I have to actually had a bit of a giggle when I saw the ads for Domain's off-market portal because I'm like, if it's on Domain, it's not off-market. Like, what the hell is that? And <laughs> what, what are you – How's that going? I mean, and what what is it meant to be? <laughs> so uh, you're talking about a product we have called Early Access, right? And I, what it effectively does is, depending on you know what the the vendor's relationship with the agent is, they can effectively get their house notified to buyers who have been looking at that area before it actually comes on demand. In some cases, it can actually sell without even coming onto demand, so that they, we actually don't even take the transaction, right? People sell it. I think what we're trying to do with that product is, to your point give buyers as much information as possible, as early as possible. Uh, that's what we're trying to do. In some cases, it will actually cost domain money because domain won't get the listing. Uh, but we want to create an attitude of like, hey, if you're using domain, you're going to get as much as possible, as fast as possible delivered to you. So that's our intent behind it. Um, but I, just to, to your point, Chris, before, and I think this relates to your point, Veronica, as well. Like, I don't think domain is the be-all and end-all. So in the sense that you talk about what people want and what people need, in some ways, the way I see domain is I do want to give them what people need, but actually, if we're getting engagement because of what they want, they're not going to get all the information from us. Hopefully, what we do is we link them to the right buyer's agent, you know, and, and we create that curiosity. We get them, you know, we're not the end-to-end -end journey, right, in terms of that. And so I think what people want and what they engage with is quite a useful metric, even if it's incomplete, because we can point them to where they get the right information. So, John, in a different sort of... Uh change of direction for the conversation. I know you were working in Ireland. What was sort of, and all through the GFC, I, th I think you were you were working there. It's a huge property crash. Sort of, um, what was your experience sort of watching that over there and um, what's sort of your learnings? Oh, thanks, Chris. Um, it was an amazing time. So I moved to Ireland in 2007. I just finished my my MBA degree and I ended up staying there until 2013. Uh, I, I loved Ireland. I'm actually an Irish citizen. I have a lot of friends there and godson there. Uh, but yeah, it was. I came right when it was the end of the the Celtic Tiger. It's called right. Fifteen years of, of of straight growth. Some of the most apartments built in the whole world. And in two thousand eight, it all came out. It was crazy. Uh, it was a crazy experience for a few reasons. Uh, there was so much excess property. You actually had this because you were squatting. And what people ended up doing is renting out these like giant houses just to anyone who would pay anything for them. And so you know, I was in my twenties at the time. Uh, you know, I, I had uh, I had my my some of my good friends. I remember there were six of them living in this giant mansion, paying about fifty dollars a month, right? And we would have the most epic dinner parties, hanging out there. Like it's just one of those strange relics of time. Where it's like, oh my goodness, like this is not going to happen in a normal environment. It only happens when there's real supply demand mismatch. Um, I think the other thing was it was a really difficult time of, of poverty. I remember my my housemate was a South African. He was an architect, a great guy. He'd come to Ireland like so many foreigners. You know, to because there was such a big building boom, and then it all fell out. You know, he ended up helping, you know working in uh, in Saudi Arabia and things like that, and it was a very very rough time, particularly people in the building industry. But even in technology, that was the first time Google had done you know any cost cutting at scale. So with technology companies, it really gave people a wake up call, and I think it was it was very tough on the on the Irish psyche. Uh, so yeah, it was a it was the best of the worst of times. I feel. And how did that sort of? I was in London at the same time. I was there in two thousand seven to eleven, and you know, I think. Um, I was. I got there. I started working as a financial advisor just as the the peak of the markets. Right. It was like the first week on the job was um when Northern Rock went under. So you know. But what was interesting is the years after it. Right. So you know, how do you think that 
you know, I guess the Irish market evolved because there was this massive oversupply, this massive fall in prices, this massive, um, you know, collapse of the banks, you know, you know, certain parts of the market probably still haven't recovered, right? You know, Dublin, for example, maybe have, but you know, what was sort of, how did it shift over the years? You know, how people's mentality changed towards property? You know, I think it was both positive and negative. Uh, the great thing, there was this, this phrase at Google we used to have that was scarcity brings clarity. You know, which is only when things are tough and you don't have much you want that you really are forced to prioritize. You know, and the reality is we always need clarity. It just tends to be harder to get clarity when times are good and we're forced to have it when times are bad. And I think in some ways that was very positive for the Irish property market because there was just any development was happening everywhere, all the time, all the place. And that was not healthy. That was a waste of resources. It would result in a lot of this effectively pyramid schemes and people investigate things. Uh, you know, people weren't asking the right questions. And obviously, that led us to question those things, and now people are making better decisions. I think on a negative, uh, you know, uh, the Irish culture is, is an amazing one. It's welcoming, it's friendly. There is a deep, I guess, cynicism, a deep distrust. I think it's been caused of a thousand years of hardship with the English, frankly. Uh, but there is that paranoia of like, the good times will always run out. And I think the difficult thing was this validated everyone's worst fears. Like, actually, no, 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 it wasn't good. It was actually just a time, and now it's back to being like it always was. And so I hope there's a balance there. We should not be over-optimistic, but there's a lot of reasons for optimism, You know, particularly in property. Property, particularly as it's so hard to build in great places like Australia, property, property prices are always going to increase faster, faster than wages. It's just how it's going to be. So if you're in the market, a lot of great things are going to happen. You know? and, I, and I think whether it's in property or with life, uh, there's a lot to be optimistic about. And uh, it was sad to see some of that uh, optimism come away. I mean, I guess then you went to the US, right? That was... Was it before and after that as well? I think just had a quick squeeze on your LinkedIn. Out of the US and then came back up. And sort of what is your experience of the market over there? Because, you know, I think what happens is people do try to relate the markets to Australia, right? Well, if it's happened in Ireland or it's happened in the US, it can happen to Australia. A lot of, um, we've got a lot of Irish clients. I love working with the Irish clients. Uh, it's uh, amazing people. And I think you're right. A lot of them is coaching them on the, the experience that they've gone through and, you know, and how to protect themselves. Because there is that you know, that paranoia that that could happen here and how do I protect myself? Well, maybe I don't want to enter the market because, you know, I don't want to happen what happened to me when it happened when I was in Ireland. So what's your sort of experiences in the US related to the the property market? Yeah, I, I just so my history, I, I, I lived in the US 2005, 2007. There was an island for six years and, and London and then came back in 2013 and, you know, was there to about two years ago. Um, you know, had the chance to, we, we, we purchased quite a number of properties and some commercial in, in the US. So quite familiar with that market. Uh, and you know, we, we had our first homes there after me and my wife got married. So the US is kind of an interesting market uh, because it's kind of bi it's very twofold. The top cities are very similar to Australia's top cities. So you think of a place like San Francisco, you know, where I live, the, the city itself is in some disarray now, but certainly the suburbs, very similar dynamics, very, very hard to build, not in my backyard, a lot of migration both within America, overseas, like a lot of the Asian capitals and things like that. People come from all over the world to study and they stay. And you have very, very similar dynamics there, which is the amount, the demand for particularly single family residents, actually house and land, always outstrips supply. And even apartments are quite hard to build. At least they have built to rent there, which I think has allowed for a bit more elasticity of supply. And so particularly the higher end, uh, actually available is pretty good. But at the lower end, particularly things such as rent controls, that's really kind of screwed everything up there. So you have these, you know, uh, you know a real lack of supply and, and people not coming in the market. So I think very, very similar dynamics. And they've seen very nice movements. The rest of America is very similar. Like, uh, it's very different. Sorry, like the you know average Silicon Valley house might be three or four billion dollars, 
average house in America is like $300,000. It's that kind of disparity you know, there. And in America, mostly, particularly away from the cities, you have huge expanse of land, these giant, giant lots, these giant shopping centers. You know, I remember going into like Texas and feeling like, well, it's some kind of like theme park where everything is like twice the size. It really is huge. And there you have a different kind of, a different kind of proposition. You know, where, you know, housing prices tend to match cost more than demand, where it's quite easy to build more. Uh, and that follows, you know, similar to, I would say, some of our regions, though our regions have been, you know, uh, undersupplied, you know, up until late as well. So similar, but a bit different and a lot more supply outside of the big cities. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens here. I mean, obviously, we have this chronic shortage of housing. I think I, I was listening to, actually, it was the Guardian podcast, and it was our housing minister whose name this case me right this minute, but she was saying that Australia per capita has the lowest number of housing um, in the developed world, which I was unaware of. And of course, with COVID increasing the demand for space, so we, what each each household's gone up a bed requires an extra bedroom or something. We're now a million properties under supplied, um, and to gear up to build and develop enough properties to to plug that gap well it's a lot it's like turning the queen mary isn't it It takes a long time to turn this thing around and we're in a in a state of declining approvals at the moment as well so despite the fact that the federal government's and is you know coming out with initiatives to try to sort of get this thing happening it's going to take a long time before we're anywhere near um the point of i guess solving the problem but also, we could overshoot the mark, couldn't we? We could be in a situation where suddenly, you know, we're ramped up and all of a sudden we're in oversupply. Certainly in the unit space, we've seen situations in, in recent, in the last decade at least, where we've had um, units oversupply in Brisbane and Melbourne. So, you know, it's sort of weird to think we've got this shortage of dwellings in this country and yet within recent history, we've had oversupply and the, and the inherent problems that that brings for those individual owners as well. So... Uh, I'm not sure this is, I'm not sure you can, I don't know if you can add to this conversation, but it's, it's, uh, I'm watching with interest just to see how this will unfold. We're not going to really know for a decade or so, I would think. I mean, I, I think honestly, Veronica, I'm a little more sure than you are. Uh, I'm, I'm actually a bit pessimistic about where this goes, right? If you go back a generation, you could buy a property with like four times your yearly wages. You know, everyone was doing it. And then half a, half a generation ago, you need a double income. And now you need double income and a house of mom and dad. And where this goes, if you look at places like San Francisco, New York, Singapore, places like that is, you just get more people locked out, right? People, uh, the home ownership percentages will go down. Rentals will go up. You know, people will be new and interesting ways. And that is because we are not unlocking properties fast enough, either through build or expansion or other things such as stamp duty reform, which will increase supply. We're not doing that at the rate that people want to come into this country and, and live. Well, I think that's really because we want to protect our existing markets and then create new markets which are not protected, right? So it's, you know, you're talking about the difference between Texas and San Francisco, for instance. You know, if, if there's lots of land, lots of supply, and then it, and the price of properties around the cost, tied to the cost rather than, um, you know, demand and supply inequality, then... Um, that's going to have two-speed markets. And we've had two-speed markets in this country before, as I mentioned with the the, how the Melbourne unit market is a classic example. Um, during a boom, some people were losing money in their properties because there was an oversupply of stock. So um, I guess that what you're suggesting there is that the, the lockout of certain markets like, a, you know, key Sydney and Melbourne, are, for argument's sake, will continue, but – there'll be new markets opened up where not necessarily, they're not going to 
owners of properties in those areas are not necessarily going to benefit in the same way that owners of properties in Sydney and Melbourne have been able to benefit over the last few years. I think what I'm saying is, if I just take the capitals, particularly the eastern seaboard capitals, right? Like, I think over time the oversupply, the undersupply will only grow. I think you will have some of these micro situations where a particular segment, like two bedroom, you know, premium apartments, is temporarily oversupplied. I think over time the market will correct. If I fast forward a generation, I think well, the the supply problem, unless we do something very differently, will be a lot worse. Be a lot worse. We're very hard to get in the market. Uh, it'll be like more like a New York, where like very few people own, you know, and then people are if they really want the land, will have to go to Texas or have to go to the really outer suburbs. So I I think that is my prediction. I'm I'm quite negative, I guess, about it unless we can make significant reform and make it where it's easier for developers to overcome problems like inflation and and DA approvals, whether it's you know stamp duty reform that encourages people to not hang on to their property even though it's too big for them right now. There's a lot of things that we can do in the market to increase supply, but if we don't, it's just get harder and harder to get it, and it will, the price will be more and more expensive, particularly the big capital cities. On in that vein, John, is there is there sort of a, a domain play into um, working with you know people like Archie Star, right, who sort of do feasibility for developments? You know, you could also work with the councils and say, look, we've got the search data, we know what buyers want, right? Ultimately, they want more properties in these suburbs, um, not because of the lifestyle benefits, but maybe because of the the, which is part of life, so it might be because of the commutes. It might be they really love more properties in these areas and we need to change zoning. Um, so you almost work as a, a market maker. You know, you almost start to help, you know, create more supply by, you know, saying this is what people want. This is what we're undersupplied. Is domain sort of playing at that level or do, do, do governments come to you at all? Like the, the data you guys have got access to is, is probably the best search. Obviously, that what bias the public, Australian public want from property, right? but you can see where the gaps are. Yeah, we have a really great relationship with governments. Uh, they use a lot of our data. Uh, we have a company under us called IDS, for example, that helps make land valuation and house valuation more accurate. And that's very, very important to governments. It helps to make decisions about zoning and things of that nature. So that is something that we you know, have invested a lot in. And so we have a relationship with the government in that sense. I do think the answers to these questions that supply are fundamentally political, right? So if you think about like why... Why haven't these some of these, let's say, common sense solutions about making it easy to get approvals, uh, make it easier to build, uh, make it less tr less less costly to have a transaction? Why does it happen? It all comes down to political will. A few things: Are we willing to give up the revenue, the stamp duty hit, or and change it for something that's more more annual? You know, number two, uh, you know, are we willing to have people develop in our backyard? Number three, do we have the right infrastructure solutions so that if we build on the outskirts, those aren't like commuter towns, but they're actually part of the city itself? It all comes down to the politics of it in my mind, which is, I think, ultimately, these are political solutions. And debate has some political advocacy. We have government communications. We have a PR group. Uh, we see it as our role of one of the leaders in the industry to influence it in this way. But I think that's also going to be the answer when there's enough political world saying, we're going to make these changes that's going to dramatically make it easier to build uh, and have more supply. Just like if you think of migration, migration is ultimately a reflection of political will. In the beginning, there was real migration with the white Australian policy, but then that shifted. And now we actually have a good amount of migration post-COVID, but not too much because people are afraid of big Australia. It'll track public sentiment is, and I think it's all similar on the supply side. And that's why I think if, as leaders of the industry, we have to be politically savvy. That's something I'd love to see demand do more. Well, from a housing perspective, I think we're probably importing too many people at the moment because <laughs> we've already got a shortage and then we're increasing our immigration, which is, just puts more pressure on the system. 
uh, th- that's only one dimensional. I'm not saying immigration is bad. I'm just saying that, you know, that it's like um, the, what you're saying, it being political is, uh, I don't disagree, but it's scary because it probably means that, you know, we're still not going to see any real major change because our politicians find it difficult to make those longer term uh, changes, which might potentially get them voted out. But anyway, let's go. Let's go back to sort of search behaviour and and the ways in which you know individuals are online looking for property. And um, has uh, and it's just a bit of a personal interest of mine because I've got a few theories about how we have changed um, post lockdowns. And and I'm careful to say not post COVID because we live in the COVID world now. Um, but I think some of the ways in which we live has changed. I mentioned before about needing an extra bedroom because we're doing this work from home hybrid, most of us. Um, some things have gone back to normal. They've gone back to as they were before. And some ways in which I thought we might change as a society, we haven't personally. You know, there's just some personal observations. But in terms of search data, have there been some fundamental changes in in what's important or what's reflecting as what's important um, amongst property buyers. And, and look, I, I could ask about renters as well because obviously you have that access. Um, yeah, but what observations, I guess, can you share Can you share with us? Yeah, I was looking at the data recently myself. Just It's just really interesting uh, whether we're in the market or not. Uh, we have seen a lot of more requests, like if I say New South Wales, the thing we search for the most is the pool. That's the number one like word that people put in that search term box. But the number two is a pool, swimming pool. Uh, <laughs> wow, yeah, okay. It's interesting. Number one term pool. <laughs> by, by far, like it's like three times. The next, the next wow! But there you the go. Number, two is, number two is study. Mm. study, right? They're looking for that. That's, that's number three in Victoria. Number two in New South Wales. And then guess what? Four. Guess what? Number five and number six are. It's granny and granny flat, right? So people are looking for ways for that home office augmentation, and that's a pretty new phenomenon. That that kind of rise. Uh, so I think that's one thing we've seen a lot of. We've seen a lot more. Uh, I guess call it like. In, interstate and inter-country uh, searches, right? So, you know, New Zealand, I mean, 23% of all overseas searches from New Zealand, uh, particularly now, it's it's spiked since the new citizen rules for New, South, uh, New Zealand residents. So people want to come here. Uh, you know, it's same within the states, right? Like you look at something like a New South Wales, uh, New South Wales people are searching all over the place, right? all over the place, not just in New South Wales, still the majority of New South Wales, but whether it's Canberra, Victoria, or Gold Coast. So we'll see that more and more. And then, as as post lockdowns, like our China increase have increased dramatically. They're the number two searching country now, just behind New Zealand. Uh, that really spiked in January when they went through their their, their COVID catastrophe and, and now post COVID uh, for post COVID lockdown for them. So that's some of the data we're seeing. It's a much more home office and a much more transitory world. That's interesting. And I mean, the home office thing. I remember um, we interviewed Al Stoltz. You know. A couple of years ago now, and she did say that 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 term, that search term, had gone up something eight hundred percent or something. You know, in the immediate wake of lockdowns. Um, so, are you saying that New South Wales or New South Welsh people are the most um, actively looking to the state? Is is that what you're saying, or is it just just one one example? No, I I think, and and I don't have all the data at hand, but if you look at we, we have this matrix that has, I guess, all the statistics of what states, what state is the person looking from and what state is the person looking to, right? And I'll, I'll try and pull it up as we go. But uh, effectively, you see New South Wales as quite active. That is, lots of people are looking to come to New South Wales, but when you're in New South Wales, you're often searching for other states uh, as well. 
And we've seen a lot of that, right? It's the perennial Gold Coast shift that we've seen over the last few years. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? First home buyers are, are pushed out of prices, right? And they look for family solutions for their family. So they're exploring, do I go, you know, regionally in New South Wales? Do I make this lifestyle shift to, you know, Queensland or Melbourne or do I go to Adelaide or et cetera? Um, but also for investors, you know, it's an expensive place to invest, right? And budgets don't usually allow to buy in a lot of places in New South Wales. They're like, well, I need to go look for an investment property in, in Brisbane or in Melbourne or Adelaide or Perth, et cetera. So it sort of makes makes a lot of sense there. I mean, have you got a property Dumbo for us, John? Um, obviously, you've listened to a few of our episodes. Um, 20 years of buying property. I'm sure you've uh, got a few good stories for us. Yeah, I'll give one. Well, time I'll give two. I think one which I thought about was, um, I mentioned I invested in most states and territories. I bought a property in Northern Territory about 20 years ago. Uh, you know, it was some people speculated. Me and my dad were, were looking at stuff together. We thought, hey, look, it's a place near Darwin. It's near an army base. Let's give it a shot. It was about 200 grand. We made some profits and some properties in Cairns. I was like, let's give it a shot, right? And, and I thought it was a bit risky. Actually, in retrospect, it was not risky at all, right? There's a very, very steady base there. And actually, over the next year or so, it went from 200 to 260,000, right? And I think we were like, great. This is awesome. Let's sell, right? We took the money and ran. Of course, like, it's like dumb, right? Because we held on that property a few years later, it would have doubled. And right now, it must be close to a million bucks. I hold on to those things. And I think we'll reflect on all those times where we sold and we didn't have to sell. Generally, because prices generally go up over time, 7% year on year, if you average out over 10 years, generally, you've got to make your money if you spend the time in market. And so for me, uh, that was one of those times like, oh my goodness, we didn't have to sell. What do we do with the money? Right? Like, we want to spend as much time in market as possible. And because transactions are important, are expensive, we don't want to transact too much. We buy and we hold. And that was that Dumbo story. Although, weirdly enough, Darwin has done abominably. So you may well have been better to get out. <laughs> but, but maybe you could have held on a little bit longer than you did before getting out. But um, did you have another example? Yeah. I mean, one where, you know, I wish I'd gotten out was actually uh, I invested in there's uh, some towns in South Australia that were near the old General Motors Holden factory. $100,000. This is back about 20 years ago as well. We thought, hey, look, you know, we've got a steady employer there. Politically, surely it'd be too hard, you know, for the government to exit it, which of course, surely they did, right? Because the, those were losing money and those property prices, you know, I, they didn't plummet, but they they they, they decreased. And I, and I think, you know, for me, the, the, the story I took away was like, hey, you've got to play out the worst case scenarios, you know, in these things, right? And you've you got to play out what that is. You've got to probability weight that. And I could do it again. It wasn't a terrible investment because it's a, a world where, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But in terms of backing yourself to a place where there's more downside than upside, you know, and, and you know, there's only one thing that needs to go wrong and then your investment's totally screwed. That's one thing which I want to do again. Yeah, I remember looking at the the um, property prices in Elizabeth and, and those areas when Holden, yeah, left. Um and that, I guess that's one of the classic mistakes of buying in a one-horse town in a way. It's like it's that's the the main employer. It's like the mining towns and, and the devastating impact that that's, you know, some of those, the changes in, in demands in mining towns have had on individual investors because they're bought in w one place with one employer. Um, and that's a bit of a classic example of that. And, and people do, they just, it's amazing the amount of people that were like, oh, it's like an airport's going in, so one big piece of infrastructure. What about everything else in, in an area? You know, or one big employer is, is uh, relocating. What about everything? What about the other employers? You know, um, it is important. It's it's easy to get sort of waylaid by the marketing spin too because there's quite often, you know, real estate agents and developers will actually 
they really hammered up on certain types of infrastructure and certain types of employment. No, that's all, I, I like, you know, in terms of your work, like you're helping people see the fundamentals, play the positive case and the, the negative case, and that's where good decisions come from. And it still might be wrong, or still something might happen, but you make the best possible decision with the information you have at the time. And, you know, to bring it full circle, I think that's very much what the division domain is. How do we bring the right information at the right time so we make good choices? Because it's so important. The worst thing in the world, you spend, a, you know, your life savings in a house if we made a mistake. And the good thing in Australia is if you hold it long enough, it probably won't be a mistake because over time we'll go up. But, you know, we don't want people to feel that way. We want them to feel confident and good and get on with living their life in the house they bought. So I think our, our missions are well aligned. Yeah, I think your first one there, it's definitely, um, we find clients are a bit pigeonholed. So they, their attitude is, I've got to sell. Um, and they're completely oblivious to the potential of maybe keeping something. Um, even if they're just keeping it for another one, two, three, four, five years, you know, is that the cash flow on that uh, negative or positive and the additional cost on, you know, having less debt, um, having more debt, um, is that worth holding it, you know, rather than just selling it right now? Maybe you could hold it for two years um, and, you know, just maybe sell it at a better time. Um, or they potentially uh, have the idea to have to keep it. Um, I just, there's emotional attachment. I'm just going to keep it. I never sell. Um, and often we are re-educating, whether it's the debt level, whether it's the quality of the asset, whether it's, it's actually makes sense to sell and, and recycle debt and buy another property. And, um, even if you do have to pay transaction costs, I think you've got to always be a little bit on the fence, um, not get too, you know, in your thinking because sometimes it's better to keep, sometimes it's better to sell. And, um, I think that's a, that's a good case study. Well, I think what I found valuable, Chris Ross, you know, uh, you know uh, it, it working a lot with, with your kind of colleagues was to take two assumptions. Generally, if you've got a house in a good area, over time, it's going to be 7% year-on-year capital gains. You've got an apartment, assume it's 5%. That's part one. <laughs> Secondly- I, I'm right, going to say, please don't anybody listen to that and act on it because it's- <laughs> But it doesn't play out that way. I mean, it does for some people and some assets. And and if you aggregate data, it looks like it plays out that way. But the problem is that people don't buy um, a share in a market. They buy an individual asset and not all of them do that. So that's why you've got to be careful um, by applying that sort of that overarching macro um, numbers to individual decisions. That's that's where the, you can get unstuck. I actually created a, a masterclass uh, for clients Um the beginning of last year, 2022, when a lot of people were saying, should I be selling my investment property now? Because basically the market has peaked, right? And so I put together a masterclass that takes people through a framework of working out whether it whether it's the right time to sell an investment property. There's a number of different factors to take into account and everyone has to work through that, that process to work out, firstly, on asset caliber. So is it a good enough asset, right? And and then there's individual decisions around your own circumstances, where you are in your life cycle and all that sort of stuff. So I'll actually put the link in the show notes because I, I, I've made it available for people for 39 bucks. So if you're thinking, I want to sell a property, I have to sell it or I have to keep it or I really don't know what I should be doing, that's, that's a really easy framework to, to work through. It's a 32-minute video literally that I, that I put together. So I put it in the show notes. No, Veronica, it's, it's a good point. I mean, I, I think I, I do hold to that 7% on the assumption that you're buying a good, crop, good property, good area, you've done your research, right? I think, and, and you're good, you know, obviously, some would do better, some would do worse. But you're right. It is dangerous to take that blindly. And that's a fair point. But the second part I was going to say to Chris, though, like, I, I do look at the 7% and then, you know, people have to think of the leverage as well. Like, if, if you can get a good property and you happen to hold it for a while, you know, and you leverage it and you can manage the cash flow, then there's significant gains there. And I feel people do tend to to underrate that, but that's something in terms of my own philosophy over the last 20 years, 
maximize the time in market, having good, not too much, not too little leverage, and then buying good properties over time, you, you, you do do pretty well. So I appreciate your your, your remarks for it. And I, I might check out the masterclass myself, which I can learn. That's, that's the magic formula you just said there, John. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, John, for coming on. I really appreciate the chat. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing domain sort of evolve, right? I, I'm excited by that future of being able to overlay lots of different things in search. Um, and I can spend even more time on the platform. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. And uh, as I said uh, to you guys offline, this is one of my favorite podcasts in the world. I think you guys do amazing work educating people. You're challenging guests like myself. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but just really grateful for the work you're doing. And looking forward to learning more in the future episodes. Brilliant. Thanks. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.